Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Is something bothering you? Are you freaking out about the pandemic? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? Have you ever struggled with writer's block? I have, but guess what? BetterHelp Online Counseling is here for you. Get connected with a licensed professional therapist in under 24 hours and get the help you need in a safe and private online environment. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It's convenient, professional, and affordable, and it's available for clients worldwide. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, family stuff, LGBTQ matters, whatever it is, BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors ready to assist you. Anything you share is confidential, and please note this is not a crisis line. Best of all, listeners of this program get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash otherppl. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash otherppl. Get 10% off. Get some help, all right? Okay. Hey everybody, how are you? What's up? I'm Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to have Ashley Bryant Phillips on the program today. She is a very exciting debut author, and her collection, Sleepovers, is available now from Hub City Press. It is the winner of the 2019 C. Michael Curtis Short Story Book Prize. Uh, it was co- the collection was chosen as winner by Lauren Groff, a past guest on this program and the uh, New York Times bestselling author of several books, including uh, Fates and Furies. So an auspicious debut for Ashley Bryant Phillips. I'm glad to catch her right now as her career is just getting underway. And we had a very interesting conversation. Today's episode is brought to you by Gray Wolf Press, publisher of Postcolonial Love Poem, the new collection by Natalie Diaz. The New York Times Book Review says, quote, Diaz's collection is no doubt one of the most important poetry releases in years. Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz, available now from Gray Wolf Press. Go get it. So I know that the... Uh, 
Like the pandemic is not over and yet things are opening again. We're in this weird kind of uh, in-between state, I feel like. And also kind of a, what's the word? There's just a lot of, like there's a lot of variability in terms of uh, geography, like how people in different places are responding to this. I think in general, people are at the point where they're just ready to resume their lives in a kind of unilateral way. And I, you know, I get that on a certain level, but I'm also troubled by it in terms of the uh, threat that it poses to vulnerable people in particular, vulnerable communities, the elderly and the disabled and so on. But, uh, you know, people do have to get out. I, I'm trying to be very careful still, and I am wearing a mask out in public and I'm trying to observe social distancing. And, uh, not everybody does that, you know, everybody sort of makes their own rules. I guess that's just the nature of people, but it sort of bums me out. These people who are just like, well, I'm not wearing a mask and I'm going to just come walk right past you and breathe on you. Something I do like about masks, and I did not think that I would, is uh, I like how I can't see people's mouths. Like I, I, I like this I, this whole thing where we we can't see each other like in full. Like, and you can like I find myself smiling at people. They have no idea. Have you had this experience where you're walking past somebody and you smile? You try to like make eye contact, and they have no idea that you're smiling. They just think you're looking at them. And then there's also something that's kind of like a, there's kind of like a masquerade ball effect. Sometimes like, you know, you see people and you're like, wow, it's a handsome man. Or is he handsome? Maybe it's, you know, who knows? Maybe just his eyes are, are nice. Look at this lovely woman. I think she's lovely. She's got a, a cool mask on feel like people are sort of getting into their masks. Maybe this is like a Los Angeles thing, but people are trying to accessorize, make some sort of statement. I think there's something about wearing a mask that makes it easier to talk to strangers. Is that, is that crazy? I think there's something fundamentally absurd about a mask. You just go out and, you know, try to make, you know, try to make uh, everybody feel a little bit better about the situation. I think that's maybe what I'm getting at is that I feel like there is extra incentive within me to say hello to people and be friendly because of the mask thing. I want to try to like put people at ease. Like this morning I was walking my dog and, uh, I had my earbuds in like my little, uh, earbuds or whatever. And I was, uh, I was listening to a podcast. So I was, I wasn't totally tuned in and she's off of a leash. She'll stay with me. But, uh, if she has to poop, sometimes I'll lose track of her, you know, cause I'm listening to music or I'm listening to a podcast or whatever it is. So that, that's what happened this morning. I was walking and then suddenly 
uh, I looked down and I was like, oh my God, Twiggy's gone. And I turned around and I looked back up the, I looked uh, back up the trail and I see her trotting towards me. And then behind her, there are two young ladies walking together. They're hiking together. And uh, from behind my mask, I called out and I said, you know, excuse me, uh, like, did my dog just poop? <laughs> and uh, these young ladies were like, yeah, you know, and they kind of pointed to where she had been. And so I jogged back up and I was like, I'm sorry, you know, wearing my, uh, my earbuds or whatever. And so uh, I pick, you know, I clean up because I'm also a responsible pet owner. I'm not just going to leave that out there. I will go to extraordinary lengths to uh, take care of that, just so you know. Like if I forget a baggie, sometimes I'll walk out of the house and I'll forget a bag. And I'll be like, you know, six blocks from home before I realize it. And then Twiggy will do her business and I will walk back home, get a baggie, and then walk back six blocks to, you know, I will do that. And especially in times of uh, COVID, you can't really borrow a bag from somebody. I mean, I guess you could, but it's sort of a risk. Anyway, uh, just to get back to my original point about how, you know, you try to be friendly during the pandemic. I, uh, I ran back up, I cleaned up. And then I was like hiking back down and I was, you know, I was moving kind of quickly because I had to get back for something. And uh, I passed the, the young ladies again who, who had sort of notified me. And as I was passing them, it's kind of awkward, you know? It's like, oh God, you have to go pick up some poop. And it's like always a little weird. <laughs> Why is that embarrassing for me? I find that embarrassing when someone like sees my dog poop and then I've got to go clean up. It's like embarrassing for me. But I was like, uh, I was walking past them and I'm holding the baggie. And I was like, thanks again. And they were like, no problem. And then I was like, I couldn't have done it without you. There was like a light chuckle. They don't know who I was. I was behind the mask. Just the masked man who picks up after his dog. My guest today is Ashley Bryant Phillips. Her debut story collection, Sleepovers, is available now from Hub City Press. It is the winner of the 2019 C. Michael Curtis Short Story Book Prize selected by Lauren Groff. This is a uh, critically acclaimed, buzzy debut collection by Ashley Bryant Phillips. Again, it is called Sleepovers. Are you ready for this? Here you go. This is Ashley Bryant Phillips. You know, because people would ask me, they'd, they'd hear my accent, and they'd want to know where I was from. And so I would say Woodland, which is in a, a tiny town in the northeastern part of the state. And whenever I would say northeastern, people would say, oh, so near Asheville? No, and Asheville's, Asheville's not in the northeastern part of the state, is it? No, it's not. It's not. So, see, you passed the test, but, like, the other folks up here, um, I would have to very kind of, like, nicely, I would make this map in in the air between me and them and kind of, like, distinguish what's the northeast versus where Asheville is, like, pretty much in the southwest, um, southwestern part of North Carolina. Um, so, that's really funny. Um 
And what yeah. about and what about like the this is a small town that you were raised in. This is like populate mm-hmm. population less than a thousand. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's like I said, it's in the northeastern part of the state. It's on the Virginia border. I was actually born in a Virginian hospital because my mama thought it was nicer than the one that we had in the neighboring county. My county doesn't have a hospital. Um, so yeah, extremely rural. Um, I actually, I looked up some statistics so I could quote them on the phone for you. Um, and I just pulled them up from like census.com or whatever. Uh, let's see. There are in my home County of Northampton County, there are, um, 19,000 people, um, about 41 people per square mile. It's 40% white, 58% black. 50% of the population have broadband internet. Uh, wow. These are some, these are some real stats we're getting. Yeah. Yeah. 80%, um, uh, high school education is the highest education they have. 12% 12% have a college bachelor degree, and the poverty rate is about 25%. Yeah, and probably rising as we speak with uh, COVID. Yeah, and, and, and this, these kind of statistics are, um, they're, they're pretty consistent, not only with uh, my home county, but many of the counties in northeastern North Carolina, many of the counties in eastern North Carolina um, as well as southeastern Virginia. Um, so, yeah. Oh, but as far as, like, you've heard of, like, Raleigh, right? Yeah, 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 of course. Okay, so Woodland is, like, Woodland's, like, an hour and 45, two hours, you know, depending on how fast you drive, um, kind of northeast of Raleigh. But then it's also the same distance from... Richmond, Virginia. So, um, a middle of the nowhere place between uh, two really nice cities. <laughs> yeah, like mid-sized, mid-sized cities. But being two hours yeah. from either, in, you know, two hours from either one of those, you're out in the sticks. I mean, as much as one yeah. can one can be in modern America. That's a rural upbringing. And I yeah. should I should say too, like. I'm thinking back on all of the hundreds of conversations that I've had on this show over the years, and I'm trying. I'm like searching my brain for one where I spoke with someone who had a Southern accent, and I uh, I think you know Come this. On. I'm I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious, and I think that uh, I mean I think you know my you know my family uh, history. My roots are in the South. Uh, my par- yeah, Louisiana. My, yeah, my parents. You know, I grew up uh, spending a lot of time in the South. All my relatives live down there still, and. You know, a southern accent is nothing new to me, but I think of like American literary culture, and uh, obviously it has a rich southern tradition. But mm-hmm. I also think of like the—I don't know—there seems to be like concentrations of writers and like coastal media hubs and stuff like that. And um, you don't—I don't know. I don't. I, I'm sure I've done. I'm sure I've talked to somebody, but. There haven't been that many, and I feel like part of the project that, um, you know, the larger project that your work um, is moving toward is to try to give voice to the 
place that you're from and the mm-hmm. people the people that you grew up with and mm-hmm. um, people who are often not represented in American literary fiction. Is that accurate? Well, that's beautiful. Yes, that, that's exactly that's that's part of my mission. That's part of um, I feel like I have this. I mean, this is going to sound silly, but I mean, maybe it has to do with the way I was raised and like the stories I heard or like, I don't know, going to Sunday school and hearing all the crazy magical stories in the Bible. But, you know, I I do I do believe that I have a talent and a gift and um, it happens to be that I'm from this place that nobody's ever heard of and um a place that's its its own self-sustained world. I, I never knew anything outside of it until I went to college. I'm very thankful I went to college. Um, and it made me aware that not only do I have this talent um, and a gift, but I need to use it to create awareness um, of places like mine because uh, a lot of people are hurting and struggling there. And it's, not their fault everyone's doing the best they can and you know especially after the trump election you know folks want to scapegoat rural people and yeah like i myself i was raised uh in a situation where we didn't have access to the best health care we so like you know mental illness everyone's just trying to do the best they can um not only healthcare was good, healthcare was scarce, but quality education was scarce as well. So when I went to college and I started meeting people who were making fun of folks like where I'm from, making fun of people where I'm from, like to your face, yeah, country bumpkins or rednecks, or, or maybe not even to my face because I don't know, like. When I went to college, I don't know why, but I feel like I feel like I decided I was going to cling to home and represent home at school. I feel like a lot of rural kids who come from backgrounds like mine that are very religious, very conservative, racist, whenever they go away to college and the rest of the world opens up to them, and they realize everything they've been taught is wrong or backwards or outdated. I mean, I can speak for my own self. It feels shitty. It feels really bad. Um, Where did you go to college? Meredith College in Raleigh. Um, But I feel like a lot of people decide when they get to college, I'm going to leave all of that behind. I'm going to get rid of my accent because I don't want people to think I'm racist and dumb. I'm going to, uh, you know, adopt this whole new lifestyle, leave home behind. I, I loved, I didn't, I don't know. I guess I loved my family in my home too much. I wanted to keep my accent. And I, yeah, thankfully, I I discovered short stories, I guess. And then the stories from home just started coming out. And, and I realized that the short stories that were being offered 
for me to read, you know, in creative writing classes or like what was getting published. Um, and let's see, what was I reading? I really liked Vice. Remember when Vice would come out with a fiction issue? I really loved that. But I didn't feel like any of them were from, none of the stories were from rural places. And I was like, well, here's another reason why I should write. Here's my mission. This is part of my mission. So yeah, you hit it, you hit it right on the nose. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so what about, like you, you mentioned, like wanting to not disconnect yourself from your roots and mm -hmm. to actually embrace your roots. And, um, you know, you talk about love of family. I want to get into that too. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, what I've always struggled with, because I feel that, I feel a lot of uh, similar sentiment. And, you know, it's very easy to sort of uh, caricature people from a certain part of the country simply because of geography or because of something superficial like an accent. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's always more complicated than that. You know, you get, down in, yeah. you get down in there and you start to meet people and it's complicated. At the mm -hmm. same time, there are legitimate issues that I have with aspects of the culture down there, you know, yeah. like a bent towards fundamentalist and dogmatic yeah. thinking in the context of religion. Mm -hmm. Obviously, racism is super virulent still and a big problem and mm -hmm. detestable and yes. uh, disturbing, you know, especially when you think of it existing in your own bloodline. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's something like I think I'm always going to wrestle with and, and worry about. So how do you reach some sort of equilibrium between those two competing impulses? I imagine you have both, right? So it's like, how do you embrace, but at the same time, distance yourself um, from the bad stuff? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's I, going away to college helped. Um, but it still hurt because while I was away in college, I was having all these opportunities none of my family members had, you know, like I, I was so excited to see this whole new world. I was dragging my sweet mates, um, to go visit like the mosque to go to the, um, the Sikh temple, um, to go eat Afghan food, to go eat sushi. I, w I was trying to devour 
literally to power. Um, as many new cultures and sights and sounds as I could. And that was so exciting to me. And I would go home and I wouldn't be able to tell my family about that because there was no way I could, well, first of all, (laughs) there was no way I could explain it to them that they would fully understand it. But then furthermore, like they weren't even interested in hearing about it to begin with. So I would try, but it was just like me kind of talking to a wall and that hurt. And, um, anyway, no, that I under- was hard. No, I understand it- what you're saying. I think like, I think what you're speaking to, and I've recognized some of this in my own family, not necessarily with me personally, but generationally, um, you know, with like my, my parents or my dad in particular, you know, mm-hmm. when you travel a long distance, um, like educationally, socioeconomically from the place where you started, mm-hmm. uh, there can oftentimes be a separation that happens, not because of some sort of willful act of, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, wanting to move away, uh, but rather just as like a natural course of things, you know, mm-hmm. and it becomes, I think, a little bit stressful and it limits, I think, like you said, some of the ways in which you can communicate Right. With your own family members, um, Mm -hmm. simply because they don't have context or the, the, you know, the limits of their experience are confined to, um, you know, the town that you grew up in and to Mm -hmm. that particular region. And if you're out exploring the Sikh temple in Raleigh or traveling around elsewhere and having, you know, experiences that they simply just don't have any frame of reference for, you're going to have to sort of leave that to the side and talk about other stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it it's gotten to the point where, you know, it's mostly kind of like I talk about my family with them, the weather, um maybe what they're watching on TV. It's really funny. My mama's always trying to get me on the voice. Um she she the last time we talked on the phone, she told me that because of the pandemic, they're now doing auditions through the phone. And so she was trying to get me to call in to audition over the phone. Why, can you um, sing? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, I grew up I grew up singing in the church. And, like, my mama, she sang in the church. She's in the choir. Um, but then... I have like a funny, it's kind of a long story, but it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty good one. Um, the college that I went to, uh, was a women's college and like many small private women colleges, there's like a lot of these sorority like traditions and I didn't participate in any of them. I thought they were really silly. I would rather spend my time, you know, going to see the local rock band shows in Carborough, whatever. Um, But all the girls on my hall were very invested in these traditions. They were, like, really silly. Like, uh, every year, instead of having a homecoming football game, right, because we don't have a football team, 
Meredith College would have this thing called corn husking. And every uh, year, so uh, freshman through senior year, they would compete with each other in all of these Olympic, kind of like the Olympic Games. And the different competitions would be broken down into categories like hog calling. So like a representative from each class would get up in front of the whole school and like holler for a hog. Um, another one was uh, called uh, like lip syncing. Um, I don't know. They had a apple bobbin. That was one of them. Anyway, so once a year at these events, there was always a singing group who would sing songs during the corn husking Olympic event. And you could only be in that singing group if you graduated in an even number year. And like I said, I wasn't involved in any of those silly traditions, but my sweet mates and my roommates were, and they knew that I was a good singer. And they told me that if I didn't try out for that singing group, then they were going to be really disappointed in me because I didn't have any school spirit. So um, I went and auditioned, and it was just like American Idol. You know, there was all these girls trying out for these five very coveted spots. And I learned that each of the five spots um, had like a representative um, style and color that they were supposed to wear and like a certain type of personality you were supposed to feel and also a nickname and all of these nicknames and personalities and colors have been passed down for generations from the original singing group on campus. Um, and the singing group was called the bathtub ring. And so I showed up the audition and I ended up, making the final cut. I ended up in the group, which was insane. There was other girls in there who really knew a hell of more more about like the bathtub ring than me. Um, and they were like crying on the floor and everything because they didn't make it to the <laughs> final cut. And um, yeah, so then after I made it to the bathtub ring, um, I was chosen as the personality named Ralph and I had to wear the color yellow and then um we would sing like folk versions like I don't want to say acapella because that makes it really nerdy because you know most acapella groups they have like a percussionist and then they have all sorts of people doing things like boom 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 like we never did that shit we were just like five female voices harmonizing together kind of like in an old traditional folk style you know like, like mountain music or like, back home country people you like, know like gillian welch or like the uh yeah. like oh brother where art thou yeah you know sort of thing yeah so that was that was really fun um so i was in that singing group and it made me kind of like a mini kind of superstar on campus i remember when i got into the the bathtub ring folks are like who in the world is she? Like, we've never seen her before because I didn't hang out on Meredith College campus that much. I was hanging out at NC State, which was right across the street. That was like the big um, public university where boys and girls went to school. 
the wolf pack. Yeah, yeah, wolf pack. So what is like what happened then? You just you sing at these uh, Olympic events and you're harmonizing oh, yeah, and, and yeah. It, like you I, the performance is well received. Yeah, and guess what? We had to wear overalls. <laughs> like yellow, yeah. like yellow overalls. No, I would have to wear. We we all had to wear overalls, and then um, I would wear like a yellow top or a yellow bandana. You know, incorporate yellow somewhere in in the in the look so did you ever think about becoming a musician or like a singer joining a band um i i probably would have but i just you know i went to the women's college and you know there weren't what what i was interested in then i was really interested in um i guess you call it indie rock i was learning about indie rock and that's what I was interested in. And there definitely weren't, uh, I didn't know of any women at my school who, you know, had an impressive collection of like, you know, uh, delay pedals and things like that. That's, that's what I was interested in. So that's why I hung out at NC State. Um, and I met a lot of musicians there, was hanging out with them. I actually kind of like cut a couple of songs with some of my pals there who, you know, had delay pedals. It was great. It they were it was it was amazing, but um never made an official band or anything. Hmm. I always say like cuz I'm just always so envious of anybody who's got the musical gift. I'm like, why? Like if I could do that, like <laughs> fuck fuck writing. I'd be out there yeah. playing the guitar and singing. Yeah, I love it. I love I love I love music so much. So 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 much. And I know that like a lot of people say that, but um I don't know if it goes back to being brought up in the church. And like I said, my family sang every Sunday. I know a lot of people, when they go to church, they just hold the hymns in front of them and just kind of like move their mouths. That was me. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, my family, my pew that my family sat on, they were loud. Everybody was singing. And what I love about that is... Even if somebody is off pitch, even if somebody isn't that good of a singer, with everybody together, the atonality kind of mixes in with everyone else who's in harmony. And it's just so, there's nothing more powerful than that. You know, hearing folks who aren't the best singers singing with all their power and all their might to, their Jesus, their God that they truly love and truly believe in and pray to every night, being in that kind of environment and hearing all those people around you creating those sounds from, from deep within their bodies, it's, it's I mean, I'm, I miss it. I, I, I think about it every day. Do you really? Yes. Wow. I, like, I remember that from growing up in the church. You know what? You know how I felt? I was just like... I'm. I don't know where. The, I, I'm. I feel like I need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's because you weren't singing. I mean, once maybe. you, I don't yeah, know. once once you get in there and start throwing your voice in the mix, um, I don't know. It, I'm always. I've always been really excited about throwing your voice out there and then hearing how other people's voices are coming in there. It's like you're creating this living organism that's outside of all of y'all, you know, and it's, 
I get that. I get that. But what yeah. kind of what kind of songs were you singing? Like were these like were these like really good like spirituals? Or, like I just remember like there was some song called like "Gift of Finest Wheat." Like how do you get excited uh, about that? I mean, you. I mean, well, here's another thing we got to talk about. Like what. What kind of instruments were going on in the church no, that you grew it, up? No, I didn't go to one of these churches that had like a dude on like electric guitar or something, you know. Um, I think there was like a pianist and like some, you know, altar boys like ringing bells and okay. I, I forget, but it wasn't like there was like a really like robust like musical act accompanying. Was it a piano or was it like a organ? I, I think it was a maybe both i don't know i can't remember i blocked it out but i think like it was just like one person really and then i think there was like a lady or a man with a with a good voice like a kind of mm -hmm. formal singing ability mm -hmm. uh who would kind of lead on a, you know who would right. be mic'd up and who would sort of lead the congregation but mm -hmm. it, it wasn't one of these churches where there was like a really like rowdy choir and you know, like a, a dude on electric guitar who was like in, into, into Christian rock or something. Yeah, we we didn't have we didn't have anything contemporary like that either. Um, but like, I mean, we were a tiny, tiny church. Um, the reason that we went to it is because that's where my family went, where my grandparents had been baptized and everything and their parents before them. And like everybody in my family had been. Uh, married there and everybody's funerals had been there um but it was way it was out of town like it was in the middle of the country um but my family has a farm out there and so that's probably that's why we went there but anyway the congregation every sunday be like 20 to 25 people oh. really small and um the pianist that we had most of the time she actually had a really bad um car wreck and she lost part of her hearing um but she still was our pianist and her husband was the choir director so like whenever they would perform a special song and like she would be off key or something like she would miss something on the piano he would throw his voice even louder to cover it. It was, and it always ended up being really beautiful to watch. Um, it, it sounds really frantic and kind of insane, but it is really beautiful. Um, well, but I grew up in it. It's interesting to hear you talk about it because I feel like in like the suburban milieu of my youth, you know, the church that I went to which was Catholic. What were you, Southern Baptist? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I was Catholic, and it was like a, you know, suburban church in a metropolitan area and had hundreds of uh, parishioners or whatever. And I had noticed over the years when I would go down south, not that my, I mean, I guess my mom was raised in a town pretty tiny, not as small as Woodland, but still pretty tiny. But the the general vibe of church going in the south is entirely different than it is anywhere else in the country i think i don't know that might not be true like there there could be like you know mormons in southwest utah who would beg to differ but there's like a a distinctness to it that i noticed about how the church has embedded itself into the social fabric yes. of the communities down there and so mm -hmm. there's less to push against i think that for people who grow up in the south i mean it's like if everyone's doing it 
and it's just like what you do. It's like we're gra- yeah. it's like where grandma and grandpa got baptized and buried, and it's mm-hmm. this is where our friends are, and they all they're all singing. Let's all sing, and you know, I, yep. I think it, And then not only that, it's like it's it's a it's a really strong part, if not the strongest part of the social fabric. Um, mm-hmm. It's a social thing in addition to being a spiritual thing. And oh yeah, I mean, what else? Is, and, and there's fewer variations maybe happening. Um, you know, in terms of like, uh, you know, there's not necessarily like a Sikh temple down the road from the church. No, you know? like, <laughs> no. So you're not like you, you know, that the, without that exposure, I think you can very easily be like, yeah, this is it. This is the total. Mm-hmm. This is the totality. And as limiting as that might be in some ways, I think it can also be comforting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was it was great, and I mean, we 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 sang like the old, old songs too, the old songs that were written back, you know, like before the Civil War um, that have, you know, parts for like men voices and women voices. And those are always the most fun to sing um, with the family because my uncles and daddy and I knew that it was so fun whenever the men part was coming up. I knew that I could like look at them and see them singing that part. That was really, that was really fun. Um, but no, exactly what you were saying. Like, uh, very, very limiting. But if you don't know any different, um, like if you don't know that you are limited, that's the thing. Uh, I never knew that I was limited or how much I was limited until I. <laughs> I left home. Um, I remember I came home for a visit one time and I was talking to my mama and I was kind of asking her why she, well, here's how it started. I said, mama, I didn't like how the preacher said it would be better if, you know, like we didn't have President Obama, that President Obama was Muslim. I said, he shouldn't have said that at the end of the service. Um, I don't, I don't agree with that. That's not right. I don't think he's Muslim. He's not Muslim. And so then I said, Mama, why do you, why do you think we go to that church? And she said, well, you know, it's church that I was raised in, church that, you know, my mama went to and her family before her. And we've always gone to that church and it's where all our friends are. Exactly what you were saying, you know, a minute ago. And then I said, well, Mama, you know, like, if we were raised in a tiny community in China, we would probably be going to a Buddhist temple. Or if we were from a tiny village in Saudi Arabia, we might be going to a mosque. And you know what she said? She said, she said, not necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've had that same thought. I've had that same thought because I'll tell you, I think that certain pockets of uh, the South, you know, just as an example, the religiosity, I think, can very much mirror the fundamentalist, like Wahhabi Muslim, uh, you know, whatever it is that people are often wagging their fingers at. I think there's like, I think they're mirror images of each other. Fundamentalism is fundamentalism. And I think some of the insular nature of uh like these pockets of religiosity you know they're you know they share a lot in common and i think the funny part is that they see themselves as being totally distinct (laughs) yes yes 
I think I think it it's uh I don't know, the more I learn, the more I believe that it has to do with rural life versus uh city life. Um Yes. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I think that's that's a defining the defining factor um for me. No, no, I I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think I've heard this said you know, among the punditry here and there, you know, there's all these different ways that um, I think people want to bifurcate uh, American life. You know, it's like these kind of like shorthand tendencies, red versus blue, north versus south, Mm -hmm. right versus left, um, Fox News versus MSNBC, whatever the stupid, you know, um, Mm -hmm. whatever the stupid approach is. But I really think that it's it's city versus country has become the you know the real um way to think of it where the mm-hmm. where the differentiation is um legitimate you know and i think mm-hmm. that people if there's a divide that needs to be bridged it is that i mean you talk just as an example about something as simple as a uh, broadband access mm-hmm. you know like i think for people living in uh brooklyn or raleigh even you know like somebody who's yeah. got got access to the um you know, the accoutrements of modernity, you know, like mm-hmm. the simple, the, the simple aspects of it is something as simple as broadband. They might not even be able to conceive of what life is like for somebody living out, um, in the middle of nowhere in Northeastern North Carolina, who yeah. does, who doesn't even have like a dial up or may, maybe that mm-hmm. is what they have. I mean, you know, and doesn't necessarily have access to, um, any kind of proper medical care or a proper public library or mm-hmm. education, you know, all these, mm-hmm. w- all these ways in which I think, uh, you know, I guess we're getting into socioeconomics. It's like, you know, certain people yeah. have access to opportunity and that's their world. And then other people, you know, their world, uh, you know, those kinds of opportunities uh, don't exist. And so right. they have to, you know, I guess you just learn to adapt or you don't know what you don't know. And mm-hmm. I think that what, what happens in the long run is that it becomes difficult for these different groups of people to communicate with one another and exactly. under, and understand where they're coming from. And um, they lose a, a sense of, of common humanity. Mm-hmm. I, that's, that's, a yep, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I was hoping, I mean, it's a big, big hope, but I do know it's true. I mean, cause I just talked to mama and mama said, everybody she knows back home has already pre-ordered my book. And I know that my, uh, faculty advisors and all sorts of, you know, very liberal thinking, um, some of them are Buddhists that practice yoga, some of them atheists. So all, my all sorts of friends that I made in my second world, that's what I call the rest of the world is my second world. And then my first world is home. Everybody in my second world and everybody in my first world, I wanted them to be able to sit at a table together um, with my book. I wanted that to be something that they could come together own and enjoy or find things in it that they were moved by 
some sort of commonality. You know, I wanted I wanted my uh, advisor who was brought up, you know, Jewish in New York City to really relate to my character, Donnie Dunlow, when um, he catches his bass, <laughs> you know. I wanted my my cousin back home who farms and I wanted him to really feel good and relate to that character Donnie Dunlow when he catches his bass you know what I mean um it's probably a really big hope uh but I I can at least aspire to it and if I don't then I'm not doing my I'm not doing the right kind of work (laughs) No, it's a star to steer by, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's great, uh, you know, to have it as kind of a guiding principle and I don't know, it's good to have a big ambition and to want your work to be this kind of bridge. Like what I keep thinking to myself is how charitable you sound. Like, I think I have more bitterness than you do about my, (laughs) my roots. You seem to have, um, like a nice relationship with it, like an understanding of the not so great, but an ability to forgive and a real embrace and a real ability to see the good that I could probably stand to have a little bit more of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, for me, it comes down to opportunities. Like I can see if, you know, maybe if my cousin who suffers from schizophrenia, maybe if he had been diagnosed correctly in the very beginning when he was young and given the proper treatment and given the right support system, maybe he would have been all right. Um, I see the same for, you know, my sister who struggled with a learning disability throughout school. Maybe if she would have gotten the proper treatment, she would have been able to succeed in going off to a four-year university like me, um, you know, met someone, uh, who was from the outside world? Um, the second world. She, yeah, the second world. She could have enjoyed more. Um, but, you know, that that didn't happen. I I, I, I see it. As, I, I guess I see how um, things can be fixed. And, and in that way, I'm not... Uh, I'm I'm not so angry about it, but it's it still. I mean, it. But doesn't but wouldn't a, that wouldn't that piss you off even more? It's like God. I mean, somebody's got schizophrenia or somebody's got a learning disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, a child, mm-hmm. a child, and mm-hmm. simply simply because they live in some rural part of the country, in the the quote unquote richest country in the history of the world, you know, like why would that, why would we not have resources ready to allocate to a child in that right. situation? Like that to me is, is infuriating. Right. Um, I'm trying to get you as angry as I am. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, for these reasons, it, it hurts me to talk to my family because I can, I'm aware of this whole other world, all these other possibilities that could have happened that, you know, maybe they do dream of them, but maybe they don't. And the fact that they don't, it's like they're in another, they're in another world. I hate to use the word ignorant, but I mean, that is kind of, kind of what it is. Um, well, I, mean, I, mean, I, it's, I, I think it's actually like, a, it's a, it's kind of an ugly sounding word, but I, like, a yeah. def, but definitionally, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't mean stupid. 
which is a big yeah. a big point of distinction. It just means the, uh, being unaware, you know, and right, not not right. not knowing what you don't know. And and it's it's exactly um, this unawareness. Um, I remember being a kid and you know watching all those cartoons on Nickelodeon and uh, on Hey Arnold. Uh, that took place in New York City, and there was this character called the Stoop Kid, and his the whole uh, the whole thing was like the Stoop Kid never leaves his stoop, and I had never heard that word before in my life. I didn't know what a stoop was. I mean, I put two and two together, but I started to realize that the world that was being represented on the TV was not the one that I lived in. And whenever one that was similar to what I lived in was represented, it was like made fun of. It was like redneck, white trash um, kind of stuff. Um, well, you know what? You bring up an interesting point because we talked about like the sort of city mouse, country mouse dichotomy mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. you know, we're dealing with in this country. But I think, too, because of cable television and especially because of the Internet, mm-hmm. um, you know, assuming somebody has access to it, which isn't always the case, but m- most people do. I think most people, even in rural America, have some exposure to the you know online life. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot more awareness of the the distances, you know, socioeconomically. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more awareness of um, the inequality of opportunity and... And then also there's just a lot of like people talking past one another and over one another. um, Yeah. You know, and so I think it's maybe exacerbated the tensions in some ways and Mm -hmm. feelings of alienation or uh, discontent or anger. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think about how trends move in the United States Uh, I think I've joked about this before on the show where like when I was a kid, I distinctly remember being in the Midwest and like, I remember for whatever reason, jelly shoes, this was before your time, but maybe, (laughs) maybe you had these in Woodland. (laughs) Yeah. I had a pair of jelly shoes when I was little. (laughs) And like, and like jams, there were these like shorts that were called jams and they like had all these like patterns on them. And for like, there was a time, this was in my youth in Wisconsin where I was like, oh my God, like you have to get some jams. And then... (laughs) I want to say, like, I came into contact with somebody who had grown up on the West Coast, like in Los Angeles or San Francisco or something like that. You know, one of these, like, big coastal towns. And they were like, oh, yeah, like, we had those, like, three years ago or two years ago. You know, like, like the point that that I'm trying to make is that pre-internet, like, trends of this nature did not travel nearly as fast. Now it's instantaneous. Yeah, because people simply like check out like Kim Kardashian's Instagram and like figure out what they're supposed to like or whatever. Mm-hmm. However, however the machine works these days. But um, like back in the day, I mean, it might have traveled through print media. It might have traveled um, through television somehow. But things like I feel like it, they moved more slowly, and, and it even manifested in terms of like the way we embraced music like the popular music of my particular generation like my classmates and i mm-hmm. like we loved like 60s and 70s rock and roll like loved it and <laughs> i have a younger sibling uh my little sister is like what 4 years younger than i am and she and her class i remember it was very distinct like that was when 
things started to shift. I mean, we also liked like Nirvana and, you know, we, there was some mm -hmm. of that too. I don't want to sound too ridiculous, but <laughs> there was really like a genuine like love and embrace of like 60s culture and 70s culture and that music. And then I remember distinctly my sister and her class getting like super into hip hop, um, you know, and I was like, oh, um... okay, things are shifting. <laughs> it finally got, mm -hmm. finally got here. Hip hop finally got here in like, you know, yeah. the mid 90s. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Was it like that mm -hmm. in, in Woodland where you felt like there's maybe a lag or I guess, you know, cable TV helped? Well, I didn't, I didn't know the, I didn't know about the lag until I moved away. Um, and I mean, hell, like not even just with like cultural little trends like that, but shoot, our, I, I, it never hit me. It never hit me until I went to college and came back home one weekend that for the longest time, the only pool in town, and it was a privately owned pool, you know, so like folks in the town got together and, you know, shared it. Uh, for the longest time, our pool didn't even have a diving board because we didn't have the money for it. Um, and looking back on it now, like, there were a lot of fundraisers. Like, when somebody needed help paying for a funeral, we threw a spaghetti supper or a barbecue chicken or pork chop um, fundraiser um, or, like, a gun raffle where some local gun shop would donate a couple of guns, you know, Um Always, always fundraising for people in the community. Um, you know, as much as we're, you know, talking about how, I guess, insular and cut off these small rural communities are from the rest of the world, they're the, some of the beautiful aspects of it are this tight-knit community. I mean, there is, there's something scary, but also something kind of magical in the fact that, like, I never really had to meet a brand new person until I moved away from home. Um, everybody else I met growing up, even mm. if I didn't know them, I knew what town they were from and I knew like what that town meant. You know what I mean? Like I had some sort of association. Um, so still sometimes to this day, like when I'm riding a bus with a bunch of people, I feel really sad because I don't know, I don't know anybody on the bus. No, no, no. I hear you're, yeah. you're, you're, I think there's something to that. I think this, like the, the sense of real community and connectivity. Mm -hmm. And I think too, um, you know, when you have family roots and it hasn't been too terribly disrupted by people relocating, um, you know, and going out, you know, uh, like alighting into the territory in search of opportunity right. or whatever. Like there is part of me that really longs for that to have like my family or like close by, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's something beautiful about that. And I think we've gotten away from that. And I, I, you know, I think of Kurt Vonnegut who always wrote about this, you know, the way in which human beings as a species, like we're wired to actually work in communities like that. And, Mm -hmm. You know, because of the economic structure of modern life, families have been scattered. And, you know, even if you have like a spouse and children, you know, that unit that, you know, let's say you have two kids, you have four people in your household, 
that's not enough is what no. the argument is. You know, you need extended family around you for support. Mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. that community of friends, you know, in order to really feel, um, you know, nourished. Uh, like there's, yes. some, I think there's some truth to that. And I think people oftentimes in modern life feel a sense of disconnect and alienation. Like even if they have like a, a quasi-functional social life, like the intimacy isn't there. And no. I don't think you can necessarily replicate that intimacy uh, with people that you meet as an adult unless you really work at it in a mutual mm-hmm. way. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, if you have like a tight knit family circle and people you grew up with, you know, the, the stuff that you build as a kid and the stuff that comes to you as a function of your genetics, I mean, it's hard to replace that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, you're, you're I lucky. You're, yeah, I was going to say you're lucky in that way. <laughs> <laughs> but you're also the kid that 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 is alighting out into the territory and yeah i understand why you would and i guess like i want to know a little bit more about your family you've mentioned mama you've mentioned daddy mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. like w- what were your parents up to in woodland when you were a kid like i guess that's just where they were born and it sounds like you yeah. have you have deep roots yeah so both of my grandparents both sets of my grandparents lived in the area um maybe you know not woodland specifically but you know a lot of that part of the state is made up of a lot of really tiny towns um spread out amongst fields and woods and stuff um so anyway all my family is up there in those in that area um my daddy uh he was a mechanic, a heavy, well, the fancy word for it was heavy equipment technician. Like I remember when I was applying to colleges, my mama told me that's what she wanted me to write down. She wanted me to write down heavy equipment technician, um, which is true. I mean, he was a diesel mechanic and a diesel mechanic is a whole nother ball game than just like, you know, working on any other kind of non-diesel machinery. Um, he worked for a one of the wealthiest men, probably the probably the wealthiest person I ever knew um, before I went to college. Um, this kind of like larger than life character who had this huge mansion um, and he did construction work and he would get these big construction jobs like around D.C., down in Florida um, around Maryland and stuff. And so daddy would have to go on those big jobs and he would be gone on those big jobs for a long time repairing like, uh, you know, excavators, bulldozers, like huge pieces of machinery. Um, and his work truck was this big, huge, like Mack truck. It had like felt like it had a gajillion different wheels on it. It had a mini crane on it. It had built in, um, like shelves for all your tools and stuff. And then it had one of those horns like truckers have, you know, that you pull down the handle up on the, yeah. And so, um, he would be gone a lot of the time on those big jobs. Um, but then whenever he was home, like that was really, that was really exciting. But then whenever he was home, there was always people in the community that needed like 
an air condition looked at or their um something was wrong with their alternator or they needed something looked at on their tractor you know what i mean so he was always he was always busy um is he still with us no he he passed away in 2017 december 2017 Mm. um from early onset alzheimer's and he was he was diagnosed um right before my senior year of college and then after i graduated from my mfa um i got a phone call from my sister and she was basically telling me like hey like daddy's deteriorated so much like don't come home and see him i know how you are you're not going to be able to handle it um and then i asked her i was like well have you you know when's the last time you went to see him and then she said well i've been praying and praying and praying about it and i've made peace with the lord and i've decided I'm not going to go see him anymore. I don't want to remember him like that. And as soon as I heard that, I knew I had to move home to be with my daddy, to take care of my daddy the best that I could. Um, I was terrified not only of having to uh, address all of that, you know, because the whole time I was kind of developing as a writer and like trying to date and trying to have fun in, you know, my college years and like trying to be an MFA student and really just trying to do the best I could. I, I was grieving, you know, um, and that was really difficult and kind of like knowing what was going on at home, but also knowing that I had to do well in school to move forward. It felt very, it was very frustrating. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's like trying, it's like you're trying to leave orbit, but like the gravity is pulling you back down. (laughs) Right. Right. And so I, um, I moved home and that, that was, that was really scary because I never, ever like, like I told you, like from the time I went to college, so excited to see this whole new world. Um, I never, I never thought that I would move back there. Um, but I, I had to, and I did, so that's what I did. And um, he passed away, and then Joey Joey ended up moving there. But that's like another different story. But Joey, Joey, can... Joey Grantham, the social yeah. media director for the Other People podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I can tell you I can tell you what my, my mama did, if you want, or I can keep, yeah, like, no, you no, can no. ask another. No, please. Okay. What, what about mama? Okay, so... Um, growing up, my mama was a probation officer, and that was kind of fun because um, we would go out to Walmart or something on the weekend. We, we would go out somewhere, and there would be someone that didn't look familiar to me that would just come up out of nowhere and call my mama Miss Phillips and hug her, and thank her, and as little girls, me and my sister, you know, we learned to just kind of like watch this, and then in the end, mama would always come over and say, that's one of my former probationers, or like, I had their son on probation, or, you know, I had their sister on probation, that kind of thing, um, she has a very, like, she, 
she's a very um, loving person. She loves to give love. Um, but then after my daddy got sick, he had to stop working. Um, cause what was happening was he was having trouble getting to the construction sites and he had always been so good with directions. And my family, my mama told me like, we think your daddy has a brain tumor. That's what she told me. And so I was expecting it was going to be some kind of cancer diagnosis, you know, and then it ended up being that. So daddy had to stop working because, you know, you can't have Alzheimer's and be working on heavy equipment machinery. <laughs> right. Um, and then mama stopped working to be home with him with kind of like, kind of like this romantic idea of like, I'm going to make the most of, you know, our last lives together. Um, and then next thing I know, you know, daddy deteriorates very quickly. He ends up in a, you know, local nursing home. And then, you know, I'm away in grad school trying to turn in these stories and, you know, just trying to do the best I can. And mama's like, we am having to file for bankruptcy and we're losing the house that you grew up in. And I'm really struggling. And, um, it was really, um, it was really rough. It was really hard. And in the midst of that, like, yeah, I'm, like I said, turning in short stories. Most, I mean, all of them are in the, the collection. Um, after daddy was put into a home, mama kind of picked up work the best she could. You know, she couldn't get hired back as a probation officer. They had filled that position. And so she got a job. Um, there's, there's not a lot of job opportunities there to begin with, but she got a job, um, working at the local pharmacy and then also working at the ABC store, which, um, some states in America have ABC stores, and basically that's just where all of the liquor is sold. And so she worked at one of those. And that was scary, too, because back home there aren't a lot of jobs. Poverty is pretty high. There is crime. You know, like I grew up hearing stories and driving by houses where, like, you know, children killed their fathers or, like, you know, angry coworkers killed someone else or there was like a drug situation. And, you know, it's not the safest area. So while I was away in grad school, writing my other stories, like I was worrying about mama being at home, working at the ABC store, um, hoping that she's not getting robbed because the ABC stores get robbed pretty often. Um, and when I moved back home after my MFA, where did you get, be, where did you get your MFA? Um, Wilmington, the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. So not that far from home, but still farther than Raleigh. Um, Wilmington is like three and a half, four hours from home. Um, but you know, like I was fending for myself and struggling to pay rent and working all the time. Um, because, you know, like Every everybody at the, in that mode, like at that point, in my family was kind of just like fending for themselves the best they could. Um, yeah, I was yeah. working in a I was working in a record store. 
down there. Well, I had a lot of jobs down there, but one of them was working in the record store, and that was fun. But when I moved home after my MFA, um, to be with Daddy, like I said, um, a lot of the houses in around me would get robbed um, at night, and I was living in a house by myself. You know, it was an old, old, old house. It had uh, little to no insulation. Very, very, very cold in the winter. Very cold in the winter. Um, like I, I couldn't pay to keep the the gas to heat the house, and so my cousin who has schizophrenia, he would give me some of his disability money to keep my heat going. <laughs> Damn. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing about it, but it's, I mean, it's, it's true. Um, and that, so that's the situation I was kind of in back, back home when I, when I moved, when I moved back. Now, do you like, do you think like in retrospect, um, trying to write, you're in your MFA, you're putting this collection together and you have all of this weighing on you, you know, you have the grief of, of your father's illness um, and the prospect of losing him. You have the financial stress that's coming down on your mother as a result. And then you have all the financial stresses of trying to support yourself and get yourself through school. Um, like sometimes I can sort of feel like having that, you know, not necessarily that kind of pressure, but it, I'm speaking generally like having, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's obviously got to find its way into the work. I guess what I'm getting at is like, the the fact that you just got the work done amidst all of that feels sort of heroic. Um, and I wonder like what your perspective on it is now looking back. Like, I guess you were just trying to graduate, but do you feel like in some way it might've concentrated your energies or something or given you a way to escape the difficulties? Um, I, I remember, the first short story I turned into workshop that was a reflection of what was currently happening in my life at that time. And I was so scared um, because most of the work was at up until that point had been written from a time in my childhood that was relatively safe. You know, like in the collection, there's a lot of little children narrators um, or characters from my life that I observed as a child, um, cause my childhood was a good, good, safe time pretty much. Um, and I remember turning in that story and I'd never written anything like it before. I was uncertain about it. Um, it ended up being the last story in the collection and then after that, I started to write more, um, kind of reflecting what was going on in my current life. And that it felt really freeing in a way. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers the question really. No, I mean, I, it kind of does. I guess, uh, I get, I mean, I guess the, the, the end result is that you, you got your book done, you know, and it happened. And I, uh, I don't know, I guess everybody is dealing with stuff one way or another, but mm -hmm. 
it does seem sometimes in life like um, certain people at certain times have extra. And I think in this particular window of time, that was the case for you. And so the fact that you were able to like produce a book amid all that is awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I just, writing, I mean, they, writing short stories, just like writing or writing essays or writing anything that I need and want to get out of me, it happens very easy. Um, And now that I've been kind of in a more settled situation, I don't really feel that need as much. Um who was it? Uh, Jean Reese or Jean Reese. I don't know how you say her name. She said something other like she doesn't write when she's happy. And, um, when I heard that I related to that, um, in some way, I was going to say, um, you gotta, you gotta ha- I guess we're going to have to have some shit happen to you so you can get another book. Yeah. Going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but I, I never thought that the collection would be published um, because I didn't see any work that was similar to it. Not that I could find anyway that was already out there. So I was like, well, you know, there's nobody out there doing these kinds of things. Um, what kind of chance does that put me at? And I really... I mean, I, I submitted to the Hub City Press Prize because I knew, uh, you know, Daddy had died. I had struggled to find any work back home. The little work that I did find, even though it was well-paying for the area, um, because I had student loans and everything else, um, I wasn't ever going to get out from under there. So I really needed the money from that prize in order to go somewhere, uh, in order to get out. So, uh, through whatever new stories I had written, um, after my MFA program into my old thesis of short stories and rearranged them, sent them off to hub city, set a big, big prayer hoping that Lauren Groff would like them. Um, and that's what happened. And I feel really lucky and really blessed. Um, because I, I feel, I feel like if I would have like, I feel like if I would have gone the more traditional route and like, you know, I have an agent now, but I feel like if I would have like done the agent and then the agent would have, you know, sent it to some of the big New York city places, they, I mean, I know this for a fact. I feel this. I feel this with all my heart. They they would have shaped it into something different. Um, and the fact that Hub City, uh, yeah, published it with with that prize is just great. They they believe in rural voices, and so I, I lucked out. So where is Hub City Press based? In Spartanburg, South Carolina. Okay, and then Lauren Groff, just for people listening, you know, the best-selling author of Fates and Furies and other books she judged the prize correct yeah yeah so like pretty great to have her support um you know that doesn't hurt and it's got to feel good um 
you know, and, and to just, I mean, to win a prize, shit, that's gotta, that's gotta be so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So then we got the money and then rented the U-Haul and found this affordable apartment in Baltimore. So here we are. So you, like you win this literary prize and that's literally your ticket out of Woodland and to, and to the big city and to like mm-hmm. the second world as you call it. Yeah. Yeah. The set, the second world again. Um, so that was wild. Um, never lived in a city this big. Um, still getting used to it. Don't know if it's my favorite. Um, but I'm just thankful trying to live in the present, <laughs> you know? And now, now COVID hits and everything's yeah. upside down. I mean, Jesus, what a, it's never, well, it never stops, you know, right? Yeah. Well, what's wild, what's wild is that we kind of picked this spot because we knew that my book would be coming out and we were like, Baltimore would be a great location because I could zip up to New York or zip over to Philly or DC. Um, you know, it's a hell of a better location than uh, Woodland for going on a, a book tour. And I love reading so much. Um, I feel like that's being able to read in, in front of an audience. That's just as important as someone sitting down, you know, to read your work independently. Um, I feel like uh, maybe it's even more important. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's like, that's like my, you know, being raised in the church, listening to the preacher tradition talking, you know, yeah, maybe. Well, and I think that- too, you have like, like you can sing, but you also have like a good voice and like the accent. <laughs> there's something, uh, there's something very like sissy Spacek in, uh, what was that Terrence Malick movie? Like Badlands or whatever, like the narration. Uh... Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I feel like if you do, are you doing an audiobook version of this? Um, yeah, I'm hoping to get down to Asheville, uh, to do the talking book. Yeah, thing. because you should read your own. You should read your own stories. It would be a crime to have an audiobook version of your collection that's not in your voice. Yeah, that's that's one thing that I wrote in my contract with Hub City Books. Um, I said I have to read the audiobook version and if I don't I have to approve uh you know whatever actor reads reads it so what actor would you want if you could pick one? <laughs> oh my god well I have to say that um I saw this is funny I saw Shia LaBeouf in that film The Peanut Butter Falcon and The Peanut Butter Falcon it was a small film um, it was made by two uh, guys from Manio, North Carolina, which is in eastern North Carolina, but like on the Outer Banks. So that's like a whole nother world, but still close to me and where I grew up because um, we went to the Outer Banks every summer. Um, amazing film. Shia LaBeouf plays this down home guy from Manio, and he's got this amazing accent and I would love him to read some of the male characters in sleepovers. Um, you know that I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw uh, Shia LaBeouf jogging around Los Angeles not too long ago, shirtless. I should, I should mention this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was driving my kid. I was <laughs> driving my kids out to. Uh, like it was during COVID, and I was driving my kids out to the Rose Bowl because, like, I had heard that you could like walk around the Rose Bowl. But of course, like, there were a million people there. Like, everyone's like coughing on each other. So, like, we stayed in the car, and I'm yeah. dri- I'm like driving around like the Rose Bowl loop, like a three mile loop around the stadium, and there's like all kinds of people kind of walking the loop and jogging the loop, and among them was a uh, shirtless Shia LaBeouf. Oh my gosh! I did well, not. I did I not talk to him. I can't remember. Yeah, I I can't remember if he's shirtless in the Peanut Butter Falcon or not. But that's a good movie. You ought to see that movie, the the Peanut Butter Falcon. It's very good. Um, I, I would have I would have enjoyed seeing him shirtless. I may have even hollered at him, <laughs> like all the disrespectful boys I hated who hollered at me when I was growing up. Well, it's a yeah. little. It's called retribution, Ashley. There's yeah. <laughs> karmic balancing yeah um so i want to talk to you a little bit more about your uh childhood and and in particular Mm -hmm. like the the if there were pivotal moments or decisions or people in your life that set you on the course that you're on to get out of there Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and to get on this literary track like what is like there's something unlikely about somebody who grew up in a place that is so cloistered and is not necessarily like a bastion of educational opportunity and so on and so forth. Like mm-hmm. what was it that turned you on to books? Who was it that turned you on to books? Were there authors that you got into as a kid that sort of lit the way for you? And then how did, how did you decide to get off to college? Were there teachers in your life who sort of like pushed you or, or, you know, recognized uh, ability in you that you might not have recognized yourself? Yeah. So, um, I didn't I didn't really read a lot growing up. I didn't grow up in a household where there were books. Um my mama didn't really read. Uh my daddy grew up with kind of like un undiagnosed, untreated dyslexia his whole life. Um and I remember when I learned how to read and write, um he he was such a sentimental person. He would always love to write special notes and people's birthday cards, you know, like at the end, he would always want to write something special. And I remember being a little girl and helping him spell what he wanted to say. That's the, that's the kind of like environment I grew up in. Um, I guess as, as far as like reading and writing goes, but I grew up in such a, vastly magically rich oral tradition um insanely rich um because as you know like small town people they can spin a yarn about the neighbors and the neighbors grandparents and the fields and the trees and the aprons and the trucks and i mean any anything anything everything has a story um Especially, too, when your family members grow up in that environment, too. Like, history kind of, like, doubles over on itself. And you're growing up in this environment where not only are you hearing these stories about your grandparents, but whoever's telling you the story is like, oh, yeah, this bowl you're eating out of, that's the same one they ate out of. And you see that that bed you're sleeping in? That's the same bed that they slept in. And it it creates this idea that like time you're like living in the past or something is real. I don't know. So that's going on. That's super rich. 
Um, and nobody's really reading anything. Um, my Aunt Darcy loves to read uh, Amish like romance novels and things like that. So every time we would take a trip to a new town. By the way, that's she... by the way Amish romance novels. That's got it's got to be hot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, every time we would go to a new town, and she had a slew of sisters, and if one of her sisters had told her that that town had a bookstore that sold those kinds of romance novels, like, we would go, and she would hunt for them, um, you know, in these secondhand stores or whatever. Um, I, yeah, I, I didn't really, didn't really read growing up. And then I guess uh, I, I remember being affected, though, by the stories that I heard. Like, I loved hearing stories. And um, when I was in, I guess, like, seventh or eighth grade, maybe this speaks to the kind of education I had. Like, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, the English teacher she uh, would, she had a record player, and she would play records of the important, uh, I don't know, whatever she wanted us to study. And I remember when she played A Telltale Heart um, by Edgar Allan Poe. And after that, I was like, holy shit, like, this is what, this is what short stories can do. Like, this is what, literature can do um that's a baltimore guy right there yeah it is it is so got an Edgar Allan Poe connection um but uh yeah after that um I always I, I wrote though I, I remember when I was seven I saw the mountains for the first time my aunt Lily and uncle Elmer took me to the mountains and I came home and I felt so overwhelmed about about it and I wanted to remember that feeling for the rest of my life. And I got out a piece of paper and I wrote down how I felt about it. And then I like folded it up a million times and I put it in the back of my drawer because I guess I saw from movies, like when you do things like that, that mean a lot to you, you're supposed to like tuck them away, like something secret, you know? <laughs> right. Um, but that was like the first time kind of like I wrote of my own free will about what I wanted to. And then my Aunt Darcy, the same one who loved the romance novels, she gave me a diary. I guess around the time I heard um, Telltale Heart on that record player. And I really took to writing in my diary. Um, because at that point, you know, I was starting to get interested in things that people around me weren't interested in. Like what? Um, like music, I guess like, I, cause the, I, the devil's I, music. <laughs> no, I spent a lot of time with my aunt Darcy growing up. Um, and she would always play Hank Williams and Patsy Cline. And around this same time, one of my cousins she turned down a proposal from a rodeo bull rider. And so she had to get rid of all of her like cowboy attire. 
and she passed it down to me. So that was just like perfect timing because I was obsessed with like Hank Williams. Um, and so I would go to school wearing these high waisted Wrangler jeans and her hand me down cowboy boots and like huge ass belt buckles, you know? Um, and that was me as an adolescent when like everyone else around was listening to Nelly and Ludacris. Um, yeah, I, I guess that that's how I was, <laughs> I was different. Um, I don't know. I think you had some good taste. I love, I love yeah. that old Hank Williams. And... <laughs> oh, I, mean, I, love, I love it. I love it too. Um, still love it anyway. So I started writing my diary. My diary became my best friend. And honestly, I think because I spent so much time writing alone for myself, you know, by the time I started turning in my papers, you know, junior, senior year, my teachers were like, Ashley, you have a very distinctive voice. I love reading your book reports. You know, every time I get my pile of book reports turned in. I always pull your paper to the front so I can read it first because I can't wait to read it. Um, so I started getting encouragement. And then my senior year, my French professor said that um, he said it. He said, you're a writer. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't think I was you know, like at that point, I started reading Rolling Stone magazine, getting, you know, liberal ideas about things. Um, I voted for Obama. Um, that also made me different from the environment that I was growing up in. Um, I saw writers as like these beings from this world that I wasn't a part of who had access to all this knowledge things that I didn't know about. So um, I thought writers were, you know, like the people who wrote in Rolling Stone magazine. So when he called me a writer, that that blew my mind. And then I went to college and um, I went to college. I went to the same college that my mom's mom went to. And that was a big deal. Um my grandmama, she was like the first one on that side of the family to go to school. And uh, she she was only able to go because her younger brother um, dropped out of school himself, dropped out of high school to take over the farm after their daddy had died. Like their their daddy died. She needed to keep going to school younger brother drops out of high school to keep his sister in school, right? You know, like sacrificing for the family, you know. Um, and that grandmother, she died before I was born. And so me and my sister were kind of brought up in this mythology of who our grandmother was. Um, you know, we would play in her clothes. We would We would love to eat the same foods that she loved to eat. We just, we, we, we relished in hearing every story we could about her. Um, so from the very beginning, my family, even though they had never gone to college, 
they knew how important Meredith College had been to my grandmama and how much she loved it and how much that opportunity meant to her. So they kind of like instilled in me that like that was the end all be all golden standard. I needed to go to school there because I would love it. Um, I only applied to two schools and that's the school that accepted me. So I ended up there. Um, and then when I was there, maybe because of my diary writing or whatever, but same thing, my professors were pulling me into their office and like, Hey, are you an English major? You should be an English major or you should turn this in to get published on the college at the college magazine, the college newspaper. Um, I had never taken a creative writing class before. So then I took a creative writing class and um, started learning like what short stories were and all the things you could do in short stories. And then once I started writing them myself and figuring out all the different ways I could write about my experience, um, that really that really excited me and I kind of took to it. Um, and just everyone at Meredith was like super, super supportive. And I remember being in my advisor's office and I was saying, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, all my other friends who are English majors, they love writing those term papers with all of those like, uh, you know, citations. I said, I hate that. I hate writing those citations. It don't make any sense to me. I'd rather just write my own stuff like this doesn't mean anything this was also the same professor who taught us old english we had to pass a course in old english to graduate from meredith college as an english major and i told her it didn't make any sense to me that i had to learn that <laughs> she anyway uh she uh and what, what do you mean like old english like the like ye olde english like that sort yeah, of stuff? like like chaucer Oh, right. Okay. One, one that April with a shorter sorte, that kind of mess. Um, I, I said to her, I said, I don't understand how me learning that is going to help what I want to do with, with my work. Um, that upset her, but she still loved me. And she told me, she was the first one that told me what an MFA program was. I'd never heard of that. Um, and she told me that I should apply for one. And I thought, I'm not good enough for that. Like, that, uh, there's no way I'm good enough for that. Um, but, yeah, ended up in one anyway. So, yeah, te- teachers, teachers gave me great uh, encouragement all along the way. Um, and Edgar Allan Poe, that recording of Edgar Allan Poe doing the Telltale Heart. Something about, you know that story, right? There's something about the immediacy of it, you know? Like, the speaker is talking directly to the reader, you know? Mm. Yeah, I haven't, I mean, honestly, I haven't, I, I read it in school as a school kid, you know? It's been that long. Mm-hmm. But I, I, rem- I want to say I remember listening to it as well. <laughs> yeah. Like, maybe I it was the same recording. The same recording. It was a British, uh, a British guy doing the one I, I heard. I remember that. Were there sound effects? 
maybe like a heartbeat or something. I don't know. Like yes. I, <laughs> yes. Yes. There was, yes. <laughs> so maybe that was going around. That was like working its way through the, uh, public school circuit or something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I mean, it's like, do you ever look back and be like, I can't believe my life, like well, how all this stuff happened. Uh, it's, I feel like it's quite a journey that you've been on and I guess it's just kind of, in a lot of ways, just getting started. Uh, mm-hmm. do you have a sense of like where you want to go with all this? Do you have like a vision for your future? Um, I just, <laughs> I just would really, uh, love to, um, be in a position where I'm just more stable, um, and maybe that does mean I write less. I don't know <laughs> because it seems, you know, cause earlier I was saying, you know, when, when I'm happy, maybe I don't write, but, uh, I, I love, I love being in a classroom and leading beginning writers through writing exercises. There's nothing more thrilling than being in front of a student who has no idea of the capabilities of their voice and, and showing them how powerful it can be. Um, that's, that's amazing. So you want to teach? Yes. And, um, so I'm just, I'm just hoping maybe one day the luck of the draw, I'll be able to teach fiction somewhere. And, that will be all I'll have to do <laughs> and I'll be able to come home and have a nice mattress that I can sleep on and I'll be able to afford a nice blender and not have to worry about my car breaking down all the time. Um, that sounds nice to me. That's that's what I would like to happen. Uh, really stressful right now with COVID not knowing like what the world's going to go on. Also all of those like hiring teaching appointments, it seems like it's all a who's who. Um, and you know, who knows who, you know? Um, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that sleepovers might help with that a little bit. Um, I'm teaching right now. Well, the semester just finished up, but I was teaching through the low residency MFA program at Western Carolina Wesleyan College. Um, and that was, that was really exciting. So, but that's, you know, low residency. I only had like two students over the semester. So. I want to ask you, I want to ask you about, uh, I just, it just occurred to me and I was, I meant to ask you earlier and I forgot, but I want to get it in before we go is, uh, the Alan Watts quote at the start of your book, the epigraph, like what is, um, what is the, like, how did you land on that? How did you find out? How did you run into Alan Watts? <laughs> um, so I was reading a pitchfork review <laughs> of an album and they compared, I don't remember if it was the lyrics or there, something going on with the sounds, but they compared it to a line from an Alan Watts essay about angels. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. 
And so I immediately looked up who Alan Watts was, um, ordered the wisdom of insecurity and that book helped get me through, um, all that time when I moved home, um, to be with daddy. And, um, it seems to me like, I don't know, I guess I really took to him because, I mean, you probably, you know about him. He very, uh, nicely translates the concepts of Buddhism to a, you know, audience that has been brought up in Christianity. Um, I mean, he's directly saying like, here's what Jesus said. And it's basically, you know, the same thing that Buddha says here, or it's basically the same principle, you know, of this here. Um, and it really made a lot of sense, uh, to me. No, I've, had that, I've had that experience like as a mm -hmm. kid who, or as a guy who was, you know, raised in Catholicism and never felt like it was a fit. Uh, and then was sort of like took a little bit of umbrage and got a little cranky about it. But then later reading a lot of books on Buddhism, which, you know, I think there's even some argument about whether or not it's a religion. You know, some people don't think it is. Some people do think it is, but it's certainly not in of the same ilk as like contemporary Christianity in most of its iterations. And, um, uh, I have found in reading books like that, uh, not only do they not undermine Christianity, like I think, I think like a Buddhist framework can be lay, like overlaid onto, mm -hmm. um, uh, like a Christian, uh, practice. Like if you're, you know, you don't have to like relinquish going to church or singing in the choir or, um, you know, or even like, uh, you know, believing in the teachings of Jesus or any of that. You And you can incorporate certain aspects of Buddhism quite easily into all that. But the other thing that it has done for me uh, is that it has um, clarified a, in a way that I think in many cases is way more elegant uh, than the scripture itself. Uh, yes. The, the scripture. It like, it's like, oh, so like just as an example, like this concept of resurrection, um, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, that was something that I just got super hung up on as a kid. I'm like, so wait, like he <laughs> died and then like what he floated out and like showed yeah. up again. Like, I'm just like, what the, f like, this is not making sense to me. Like, <laughs> this isn't passing the smell test for me. Yeah. Um, where's the body? Wh who yeah. did what with the body? <laughs> yeah, right. Show me a corpse, like produce a corpse <laughs> and then we can talk, you know, but, um, you're asked to take all of this on faith, of course. And then I think that, you know, the Buddhist concept of, um, of, uh, you know, non-self and, uh, I guess, uh, reincarnation, J just the notion of, uh, how do I put this? It's always so hard to talk about this stuff without mangling it, but basically the idea that there is not annihilation, that there is only state change and mm -hmm. that, um, you know, like if there's a cloud in the sky, one day and then the next day there's a blue sky it's not like mm -hmm. the it's not like the cloud got annihilated it just turned into either condensation or rain and is and is now the river like that sort of like circular logic rooted in the natural world yes forms a basis of understanding for me that makes resurrection and the teaching as jesus was relaying it make some sense on my terms or on term mm -hmm. on terms that I can live with and still mm -hmm. feel like a thinking person. And <laughs> I'm, I'm actually grateful for that. Cause then it's like, Oh, okay. So now I can relate to this stuff. Um, 
you know, and not have to feel like I'm sitting there saying that the emperor is fully clothed when in mm -hmm. fact the emperor, you know, has nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like it mm -hmm. just, it just, it, I, I think there should actually be more dialogue. If there were more dialogue between, um, that sort of thinking and the scripture itself, then I think that the chances of Christianity being relevant to the world, uh, particularly as we move into like, you know, I mean, we're moving into it now, but like climate change and, COVID yeah. and all of these disruptions, I think, I mean, uh, I don't know, I'm sort of going off on a tangent, but it's just, <laughs> I really feel like it, it, it strains the ability for people to, uh, f for some people to find it of service. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of, it's sort of, mm -hmm. it sort of loses its, it loses its relevance for me because it seems like it's stuck in old ways that are no longer necessarily relevant and um i don't know i guess you i guess what i'm saying is that these traditions don't have to lose their 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 good the good and most sacred parts of their core but they do have to change with the times in order yeah. in order to survive it just seems like logical to me yes yes so and i don't know i was like let me put let me put this at the front of my book. Maybe people look him up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I, I I think it's like it's like it's like it's a very subtle but like super cool, I think, juxtaposition because it's like what is, there's this book of all these sort of like, you know, child narrators in small town southern America talking, uh, you know, in this sort of like lovely plain spoken uh southern dialect and to have an Alan Watts quote at the front of the book is not necessarily something that you would expect. You would expect like Flannery O'Connor or, yeah. you know, something else. And, uh, so I loved it. It just sort of like caught me by surprise and it obviously fits the book. It's just, uh, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a lovely choice. Yeah. I was so, so excited. I was so excited when I stumbled on it and I was like, Oh my God, this is how, this is how I felt about this is how I feel about these stories. This is how I've felt in my life. This is how this is how these this is circumstances for the, these characters. Um, and I was like, thank you, thank you, Lord Alan Watts, for for writing it. Um, but yeah, I like because another thing, another thing that I want to say that that you know when you do have an accent or when you are from the South, um, people love to expect. Uh, Flannery, uh, Eudora Welty. They love to expect biscuits. I can't tell you how many friends of mine who, you know, I, I love them, great friends, and they'll, sometimes they'll just send me be like, I just ate a biscuit and thought of you. Like, okay, but we can also talk about, you know, I love classical music, or what about this French film I just saw the other day? Um, I like the idea of yeah subverting expectation you know going back to the idea that people are highly complicated highly complicated contain multitudes and to put anyone in in a box is such a disservice to like not only are you shutting down all the different facets and beautiful like possibilities um of learning about who they are, but also like learning more for yourself about what's, what's possible. Um, 
in life, you know? Yeah. So anyway. I hear uh, you. Have you, ever heard yeah. of a, have you ever heard of a guy named Daniel Ingram? I've heard of that name. Yeah. He's, uh, the reason he comes to mind is just like in this Alan Watts talk and subverting expectations. But I, I want to say he lives in Alabama, but he went to school at NC State. I could what? Be, I could be wrong, but he is a... Like an expert Buddhist scholar, sort of self, sort of self-taught, <laughs> and uh, he wrote this book called uh, "Like Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha," which for a long time he gave away. He might even mm-hmm. still, you might even still be able to get it for free online. But it's like this, this sort of like Bible-length, massive book, and he, uh, like, he calls himself like in the t- on the cover of the book, he calls himself an uh, an arahant, which means like. It's a designation in Buddhism that he's like realized like a high level of mastery essentially. So it's a little oh bit like it's a little bit unorthodox because you typically don't have people kind of calling their shots in Buddhism like I am an arhant. But um, he <laughs> like it, like I encourage you like just it, because he's also like this incredibly manic like super fluent talker, mm-hmm. um, and he's got a bit of a twang. Mm-hmm. And so it's so it's just like it's like I love listening to him not only because he's fascinating to listen to. Uh, and he knows quite a lot about Buddhism, but also because it's just so unexpected in some ways and, you know, relative to what you traditionally have been conditioned to expect, you know, yes. like even Alan Watts, I guess, you know, to a certain degree, especially in his time was, you know, mm-hmm. un- unexpected. But to have some guy who I think is like, I think by his day job is he's an ER physician or something in Alabama. So he's a medical doctor, but he's also like, uh, apparently like a, like a super realized, like Buddhist master. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Anyway, this, this is fascinating <laughs> to me. Like I, I want to know, I want to know what dorm he lived in or like if he ate in fountain dining hall where I would sometimes eat, uh, like look I'd... up a, look up like a podcast or like a YouTube video and listen to an interview and, I guarantee you, you'll be like, holy shit. Like, I want to say he, <laughs> he did, he did an interview, uh, like Dan Harris, the ABC, uh, news dude. He's got like mm-hmm. a, he's got a Buddhism podcast called, uh, 10% happier. He did, uh... a, he did a good interview with, uh, Daniel Ingram. And then there's also one called Buddhist geeks. Like they interview him and I think they're sort of like in league with him, but, um, like an unusually good talker. I'll put it to you that way. A very, very big go pack energy, honestly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. I'm going to, I'll look him up. That's exciting. All right. Well, listen, uh, it is also exciting to get a chance to talk with you. Um, obviously, we've been in touch, you know, here and there uh, with, with Joey and I uh, mm-hmm. being pals and, uh, you know, with Joey working, you know, for me a little bit and so on and so forth. But I've never really had the chance to, like, actually talk with you. I wish we were doing it in person, but things being what they are, uh, you know, yeah. we're, we're doing it this way and it's been a joy. I'm really happy for you. Uh, I know, oh, I know you, uh, you know, like, I, I don't know. I have a lot of admiration for what you've been able to accomplish in the face of the various challenges that you've had to go through over these past few years. And I'm just, uh, thrilled to see this book come out and, and to be getting the recognition that it's getting. And, uh, I just hope some terrible shit happens to you so you can write another one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see. In in the meantime, in the meantime, uh if I don't get to see Shia before you do, 
next. You should holler at him for me the next time you see him. <laughs> I don't like like for some reason like I have like absolutely zero. Like usually I'm a little afraid of celebrities or something. Mm -hmm. Like I don't I don't like being around celebrities. They weird me out. Like they as people don't, but their celebrity weirds me out. If that makes right. sense, I don't like the the dynamic and the the feeling of having to pretend like I don't know who they are and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I find I find that annoying. And uh, but for some reason, for Shia, Shia LaBeouf, like I would I would be like, hey, dude, like I I feel like I don't know why <laughs> I don't know why he's just one of those people. It's not a, it's not that I disrespect him or anything. I just feel like I'm sort of uh, I'm somehow in league with him already or something. I feel like he would be receptive, but maybe I'm wrong. No, I feel I feel like he would be too. I feel like he's he's a good good old boy, maybe deep down somewhere. There's something <laughs> I'll tell I'll, I'll tell you this. There's something very real about him. Yes, that's what it is. And I think <laughs> I also think he's a hell of an actor. I think he's like mm -hmm. he's like one of those dudes who like you know it's like the whole thing where they lose weight for a role and they almost die. Like I feel like mm -hmm. he he's willing to almost die for a role. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, listen, great talking with you. Congratulations again. And, uh, you know, best of luck out there in Baltimore. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. And, um, yeah, I hope you have a good afternoon out there. Love to all your family and, and little Twiggy, too. Okay, there you go. That is Ashley Bryant Phillips. Her debut story collection is called Sleepovers. It's available from Hub City Press the award-winning collection sleepovers go get it it just dropped it just happened ashley bryant phillips can be uh, found on twitter you can follow her there at woodland raised you can find her on instagram too once again the collection is called sleepovers available from hub city press go get your copy If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. This show is offered freely. Every single episode is available for free. Support the show. If you would like to write to me, if you have some feedback, if you have thoughts, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget this podcast has its own official app, the, the uh, Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Available where you get your apps. All right. So what do I tell you? Uh coming up some some of the guests who are in the pipeline everything got jumbled with uh the protests and the calendar got all mixed up i'm not entirely sure but i've got uh meredith tallison joseph deprisco genevieve hudson brady hammes wayne kustenbaum i've got some good ones in the pipeline what else i have uh what else do i have Hang on. Oh, yeah, Brian Allen Carr, too. Got some good ones.
Okay, okay. Wear a mask. Pick up after your dog. 